So in Luke chapter 24, uh, something happens. Jesus is raised from the dead. A few of the women see it and they go back and tell the apostles and the apostles are like, yeah, we don't know if this is really true. I mean, women aren't really all that trustworthy, so we can't really believe them. And yet they are the first ones entrusted with the gospel message that he is alive, just as he said, go tell his disciples. And then a little later, you know, after Jesus appears to them and they go back and they tell and Peter and John run to the tomb and they see it and they're scratching their heads. We've got a guy named Clopas and an unnamed companion on their way back to Emmaus. And they're depressed. They're just defeated. They thought this Jesus of Nazareth was going to change everything. And yet he was dead. And Jesus, kind of in fun Jesus fashion, kind of comes up to them and he's like, hey, what are you guys talking about? They're like, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on? He's like, no, I'm, I'm clueless. <laughs> They're like, oh, Jesus of Nazareth, man. He was a man appointed by God. He, he did miracles. He, he spoke with authority. We thought he was going to be the Messiah that would redeem Israel, but... It's been, he's been dead three days now and some of our women told us a story that he's alive and we don't know what to believe anymore. And then Jesus says, Luke chapter 24, verse 25 to 27. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And the amazing thing is, they still didn't see that it was Jesus. <laughs> right? He wasn't revealed to them until he took and broke the bread and blessed it and gave it to them and then their eyes were opened and they, it's the master. Then poof, he disappears. <laughs> you know, I kind of think Jesus was having fun with this new resurrection body. He was like, you know, hey guys, I'm here. The doors are locked. <laughs> Don't be afraid. It's okay, it's just me. Um, and then he does that. He, he comes to them later, right? Uh, just, just a few verses later, he appears to the, the, the disciples in the upper room and all the women who were there with them and who had followed him. And he says to them, and then, then he said to them, these are my words, verse 44, that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And now, uh, the, the Hebrew Bible's organized into those three groupings, the law, the prophets, the writings. Very different order of books than what our English Bibles use. Thank you to the Greek uh, translators, the Septuagint, a couple hundred years before Christ for reorganizing the books for us. But the Hebrew Bible's very different order of books. Much bigger rabbit trail topic, different day. But Jesus goes to the Old Testament, all of it. That this must be fulfilled, that what has happened was according to the word of God. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. 
And this forms kind of the, the, the foundation of the whole gospel project. That the law, the prophets, the writings are all about Jesus and what he came to do and the good news that he came to bring that God is in control, that God is king. That Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God. This is the heart of how we will be reading scripture and how we should have been reading scripture anyway. There's three kind of goals with every message. And, and, and I, I think this is, this is helpful, uh, uh, a good helpful way that, that the Gospel Project has put this together for us because th- this will translate into what our kids are doing even from preschool all the way to high school and, and, and all this stuff. But um, there's, there's kind of three dimensions of application we're gonna look at every week and that is our heads, our hearts, and our hands. Our, our heads, we wanna know him better. Know our Lord better. Paul says in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And and what were all those things that Paul was saying? This is all garbage. This is all, I I can't hang on to this stuff anymore. I'm going to let it go. Most of it was his pharisaical, narrow view of what, who God was and how he worked. This Jesus can't be the Messiah and I'm gonna kill anyone who says otherwise. And he had to let that go and he had to let go of the failures that he had. And just imagine the radical shift that happened on that road to Damascus as Paul experienced Jesus and everything in his life changed. And that's the kind of knowing Jesus, he longs for. Like, like just imagine, G, Paul has had this amazing vision of Jesus, this amazing call of Jesus, and yet he still says, I want to know him more. To know him better, goal one. Goal two, to love him more. Mark chapter 12, 29 to 31, Jesus is asked what's the most important commandment and he answers, the most important is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so as we look through the Bible, we wanna see how does this lead me to love my Lord more and love the people around me better. To know him, to love him, and then the hands to serve him fully. We want to know him more. We want to love him more. We want to serve him fully. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so in every story, every text, every psalm, every proverb, pointing us to Jesus that we would know him and love him and serve him. And this is really the purpose of the Bible, to know God, to love God, to serve God. See, the purpose of studying the Bible is life change and transformation. 
Bible study outcomes of Jesus' day were just to get information and to control people and to tell them what to do. And Jesus said in one of my favorite and probably one of the scariest passages because he's talking to the Bible scholars of the day and the guys that were preaching and teaching and, and trying to lead people in the right way. He says to them, you're searching the scriptures because by them you think you have eternal life. You don't realize you gotta come to me to receive that life. The scripture's about Jesus. Romans 12, two from the New Living Translation, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, what is good and pleasing and perfect. As we come to the text of Scripture, as we come to the stories of Genesis over the next 12 weeks, may we know God more, may we love him deeper, and may we serve him fully. This is my prayer as we get into this gospel project, that we would know Jesus, love him more, serve him fully. So, let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. Genesis chapter 1. Let's stand as we read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness and called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit, bear, fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. 
And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters of the sea and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps along the ground according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful And multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, he created. God created. Eight Hashamayim, the heavens, the eight Haaretz, and the earth. Seven words in Hebrew start the creation story. The number of completeness. The next sentence is 14. Seven times two. 35 times the name of God is used. Seven times five. The number seven repeats over and over in this text. The seventh day is the pinnacle. It's the highlight. It's chapter two and verse three. How many times does he say it? And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done. He rested on the seventh day of all his work. God blessed the seventh day because on it he rested. It's about the rest of God. It's about the completed work of God. It's all about God. God. 
God is the only active character in this whole story. He is the subject of every verb. He speaks, he calls, he sees, he separates, he commands, he blesses. Every action is God's action. It's all about God. And grammatically, there was no reason because God is the only subject for the noun to be repeated over and over and over and over. It could have just said, and God saw that it was good, and he said, and he saw, and because, so the author deliberately wants us to hear Elohim, Elohim, Elohim. This is God's story. This is God's work. This is all about God. And so three main points I want us to hear and to experience today out of this passage is that God created everything good. God created everything by design. And God created everything for a purpose. And that affects how we live right now today. God created everything good by design and for a purpose. God created everything good. This divine evaluation runs through the whole text seven times. And God saw that it was good. Six times, and then the seventh time, and behold, it was very good. This is important because as the African Bible commentary states, nothing comes from the hand of God that is not intrinsically good. He is the good God who does all things for good. God created everything good, and why does that matter? Because everything in creation was made by God and for God, and it is good. He can't make junk. The Hebrew word good is the word tov, and it can mean good, Delightful, pleasing, beautiful, glad, joyful, precious. Now, now imagine just some of those potential other definitions of that word filling in the gaps here rather than just, you know, good is a fairly generic word for us, right, in English. It's just, well, how you doing? Good. What does that mean? God saw that it was beautiful. God saw that it was joyful for him. God saw that it was pleasing. God saw that it was precious. That makes the whole thing deeper. See, God takes pleasure in his creation. He delights in his creation. He holds his creation as precious. The physical reality of our universe delights our God. See, God isn't just interested in saving souls to a, a bodiless heaven. That's not the way the Bible ends. He recreates the heaven and the earth, and, and heaven comes to earth, and, and everybody is raised to life, and there's, there's trees, and there's water, and there's, there's life still. There's a physicalness. If Jesus is raised bodily then as a model of the resurrection we experience, then it's a physical reality of eternity. God delights in the physicality of his creation. 
as broken and decaying as this present world has become, God still holds it as precious, joyful, pleasing in his sight, and he will one day redeem it and recreate it all. God looks at creation and he declares, this is so good. I'm just delighted. This is precious to me. God created everything good and you and I are part of that creation. You are precious to him. God created everything by design. There's a literary pattern in Genesis 1 in this creation account. It starts with the reality, verse 2, that, that everything was formless and void. It didn't have any, there was nothing you could kind of grab onto and it was empty. And then God forms environments, day one, two, three. And then he fills them with life, day four, five, six, and they're parallels. Day one, he separates the light and dark, and day four, he creates the lights to go in that, that, to embody that. Day two, he creates sea and sky and separates them, and day five, he creates the fish and the birds that live in those environments. Day three, he creates the land and the plants, and day six, he creates the inhabitants of the land and the consumers of plants, animals, and humans. And then day seven, the climax of it all, the Shabbat the rest. And God sets a pattern for us to live out. In Exodus chapter 20, in six days you shall labor and do all your work and the seventh day is holy. And that's the focus of actually this whole chapter. The focus is the Sabbath. Chapter 2 verses 1 to 3, repeat, repeated, repeated. Sabbath, rest. Enjoying the creation that God finished. God creates environments and he fills them with life. Everything that fills the environments is uniquely and specifically suited to its environment. And then humanity in the end is given the task to nurture, to protect, to develop everything that God created. We're going to get into that specifically. That's next week's topic altogether is the image of God and what does that mean? How does it affect how we Know God, love God, and serve God. But God creates everything by design. And, you know, the short phrase for this is a place for everything and everything in its place. But then there's this last point that God created everything for a purpose. And I think it's a question we don't often engage because we really like to talk about how God created or didn't create, but we very rarely talk about why. Why did God create? Why bother? Why are we here? Now think about it. The creation account affirms for us that God is not part of creation. His self-identity his meaning, his glory is, is not part of it. it. Creation reveals it, but it, he is not dependent on creation. He is the creator, which means he is outside the confines of creation. He doesn't need it if he existed before it. So why did he say light? As I was reading and trying to wrestle through this question this week, 
Even the Gospel Project, they went on this different tangent and it was like purpose, but there was nothing that really talked about the question of why. I was like, come on, like, if you're going to talk about purpose, you have to answer the question why. Most books spend a lot of time on the who of creation, God created, and that's very important because if you go through and circle again, 35 times in these verses, it's God acting, it's God acting, it's God-centered. And so that's, that's great. And then there's a ton of time spent on various explanations of the how God may or may not have created, but the question why does not get the same consideration. Maybe one or two paragraphs out of whole chapters and books. Is this because the answer is just simple and obvious or is it because it's elusive and the Bible leaves us to question and wonder and stretch our faith? A few verses that I found helpful in answering this question, at least in preliminary form. Isaiah 43, 6 to 7, God is speaking and he says, I will say to the north, and this is, he's speaking about Israel in exile, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Psalm 19, one to two, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, or our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And so there's a simple answer to this. It may not answer the deep question of why for us, but it's the answer we're given. God created because he wanted to. And he is glorified in it. The natural question then is, well, why did God want to? <laughs> right? And if you've got a three-year-old, you know the question why. Right? And it's annoying. How come I can't jump off the deck, Daddy? Because you'll hurt yourself. Why? <sighs> why, why, why? Like, it's, it's constant. But it pushes you to really evaluate why you've put that boundary in place for your kids. And we really look at, you know, why do, we, why do we do what we do? Why do I respond to this person differently than I respond to that person? And when we really push that question, why, it starts to expose our motives. And we move more from the simple answer to a more elusive answer. And Hebrews 11, 1 to 3, I think, puts it in perspective. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what was seen was not made out of things that are visible. And now he's talking about the how, right? He's not really talking about the why there. He's saying by faith, we just understand that God spoke this into being. The Old Testament constantly refers to the glory of God in creation. 
How great is our God, the song we sang. How great is our God. The glory revealed in creation. God created the universe for his glory. And he expressed who he is through what he created. And therefore, everything God created is good and by design and for his purposes. Wayne Grudem, in his uh, Bible Doctrine uh, book, it's a kind of a shortened version of his systematic theology. Is this to say about the purpose of creation? When we affirm that God created the universe to show his glory, it is important that we realize that he did not need to create it. We should not think that God needed more glory than he had within the Trinity from all eternity or that he was somehow incomplete without the glory that he would receive from the created universe. This would be to deny God's independence and imply that God needed the universe in order to be fully God. Rather, we must affirm that the creation of the universe was a totally free act of God. It was not a necessary act, but something that God chose to do. You created all things, and by your will, they existed and were created. God desires to create the universe to demonstrate his excellence. The creation shows his great wisdom and power, and ultimately it shows all of his other attributes as well. It seems that God created the universe then to take delight in his creation. For his creation shows forth the various aspects of God's character. To that extent, he does take delight in it. God created the universe then to take delight in his creation. This is so good. So how does this lead me to love God more, know him more, love him more, and serve him fully? First, we come to know God more when we realize that he delights in our world and our universe and our lives. He did not make a mistake in creation. He didn't start up the universe and then leave it to run its course and stumble along. God spoke into the darkness and the emptiness and brought life and light and order and fullness. God delights in his creation and he delights in each one of us. God delights in creation so much that the brokenness of it tears his heart apart and he came to restore it and redeem it and he did that by entering into it. No other religion has this reality that the creator, almighty God of the universe would become part of creation. Physically. Radically different. John 1, 1 to 4, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made in him was life, and the life was the light of men. John's Christological interpretation of Genesis 1 right here. And then John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh. 
And this would have just blown every Greek and Jewish mind at the time in that world. The logos does not become flesh. The flesh is evil. The first, the, 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 the Lord does not condescend to take on physical form. And here John is saying, oh, but we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God delights in his creation so much he came to redeem and restore it, and he did it by entering into us as one of us. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, often we only think of the reconciling work of Christ as being an individualistic thing because we live in an individualistic culture, so it's just me and God and everybody else can do what they want. Here, Paul is saying, read it carefully. I don't know, like unpacking this whole thing would be a whole other sermon or book or series through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven. All of creation is impacted by the blood of the cross. Is a focus of his reconciling work. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And as I was putting Genesis 1 together with Revelation 21 and 22, is interesting. There is no need of the sun because there will be no darkness. There will be no emptiness. There will be no void. There will be just him. The sun and the moon aren't needed because the Lord is its light. There's no temple needed because the Lord is the temple And the recreated world is so much different. Christ reconciled to himself all things, whether in heaven and on earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. So we know, we know our God better when we realize that he delights in our lives and our world and our universe. We come to love God more when we realize that no matter how far we fall, how broken our lives become, how formless and void we feel and how out of control our world becomes, God can speak life and light and order and fullness into the darkest of places. The miracles of Jesus throughout the Gospels point to God's desire to renew life. To the man who never saw light, Jesus said, be opened. And he saw, and it was good. The miracles of Jesus point us to the renewed life and the new creation that he is bringing to a world infected with sin and decay and death. J.R. Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings, the elf Haldir said this, the world is indeed full of peril, and in it there are many dark places but still there is much that is fair. And though in all lands love is now mingled with grief, it grows perhaps the greater. 
Though in all lands, love is now mingled with grief. This is our reality. It, love, perhaps grows the greater. We come to love God more than when we realize no matter how far we fall, how broken our lives become, how formless and void we feel, how out of control our world becomes, God can speak life and light and order and fullness. We come to serve God fully when we realize that as his children, we are called to continue his creational mandate to care for creation here and now while we long for the return of Christ to make all things new. And again, this is all of next week is living out the image of God. But for now, if God created the world that we live in now and he calls it good and takes delight in it and holds it precious, then how shall we live in this world? We should not take it for granted. We should not abuse its resources. We should not see it as something simply to be used for our own ends, but to see the earth and all that is in it as a reflection of the glory and the wisdom and the power of God who caused it to be. And amid the brokenness and confusion of our world today, we will serve God fully when we, along with creation, enter the lament of eagerly awaiting the renewal of all things. Romans 8, to 25, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies physical reality God created us with. We'll miss that. The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. N.T. Wright in a small book he published last year called God in the Pandemic said this. So what does this mean in practice? And he's expounding on this passage from Romans. It means that when the world is going through great convulsions, the followers of Jesus are called to be people of prayer in the place where the world is in pain. Let that sit with you. Where have your energies and your emotions gone this past year and a half? The followers of Jesus are called to be people of prayer at the place where the world is in pain. If God can speak creation into being, then he can speak creation into healing. And one day, he will. We know God more when we realize that he delights in our lives, our world, and our universe. We come to love God more when we realize that no matter how far we fall, how broken our lives have become, how formless and void we feel, how out of control our world becomes, God can speak life and light and order and fullness. 
And we come to serve God fully when we realize that as his children, we are called to continue his creational mandate to care for creation here and now while we long for the return of Christ to make all things new. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word to us. Thank you that this is all about you. God, we can often make this opening chapter of Genesis about so many other things other than the fact of you. You are the actor. You are the prime mover. You are the one who spoke everything into existence. You made everything good, pleasing, precious. You designed it You have revealed your glory through it. Lord, may we stand in awe as we drive home, as we look at the trees and the hills and the rivers and the animals and as we see our children and our grandchildren and parents, may we just be overwhelmed with the amazingness of your creation. And Lord, we do long for the day where all things will be made new. When you will return and you will create a new heaven and a new earth and darkness will be no more and death will be no more and every tear will be wiped away. Oh, the compassionate, loving, close God as heaven comes to earth And the dwelling of God will be with humanity forever. Lord, may we in this time be people of lamenting prayer where the world is in a state of pain. Break our hearts with what breaks yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand for the benediction from 1 Timothy chapter 6, 13 to 16. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.